Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll, Robbie Zacharias, Bill Gothard, Ted Haggard. I could go on. These are all pastors, ministers who, for one reason or another, did things that required they be removed from serving as pastors or heads of their ministries. In fact, it's become so common that it almost doesn't really even surprise anyone anymore when a pastor does something so bad that they have to be fired. Really, nobody even bets on that much. I can tell you, in my, in my own lifetime, in my own time of pastoring, I have personally known five pastors who either committed adultery or molested children. Guys, I knew. Well, why does it happen? Why does it happen? I mean, obviously there's lots of causes, right? The lure of power, unresolved issues in their lives, maybe childhood traumas. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Can't analyze every case. But I, I can say, I think fairly authoritatively, that none of those things are the ultimate cause. Because I think it's something deeper but yet deceptively simple. Because I don't think that any of these people, I mean, I don't think Carl Lentz or Bill Gothard or any of these guys started out in ministry and said, I want to go be a pastor or a teacher so I can be an adulterer or so that I can molest someone. I don't think so. I'm going to go be a pastor so I can create huge financial impropriety. started because they want to serve Jesus. And they probably love people and they love the Lord and wanted to see lives change. But somewhere, somewhere along the road, Jesus stopped being the main thing. Their power or their position or their influence or money or their traumas or unresolved issues or whatever, I, I don't know got in the way of Jesus being the primary thing. Something or some things became more important than Jesus. In other words, in their lives and in their ministries, Jesus stopped being preeminent. Instead, they became preeminent. Let's take the case of Bill Hybels. Back from Willow Creek, big church in Chicago. I read this guy's books. I heard him speak. I was at the Willow Creek Leadership Conference one time in the 90s. You know, that was a long time ago for some of you. And he spoke. And I mean, this guy, this guy, has, this guy had pulpit skills. Okay. And he gets there, and this is the opening night of this conference, and his whole message was about hell and about the gospel. I mean, these are, this is a pastor's conference. He's preaching about hell and the gospel, and he says, you know, he says, you guys might think it's funny that I'm talking about hell and the gospel and that sort of thing, but you know, you could be in the ministry, and you could be serving in ministry and never really know Jesus. And I thought, whoa. All right, then. I mean, at its peak, Willow Creek had 25,000-plus people attending every weekend. It's like the whole population of Cedar Falls over to one church. Their building's a little bit bigger than that. 
Jacksonville, you dare not disagree with him lest you find yourself unemployed or no longer in any position at the church. <coughs> and if you were a woman on staff, you dared not question Bill's inappropriate comments or his touching, his inappropriate touching, or you'd be gone also. Those are not the ways of someone who puts Jesus first. Those are the ways of someone who has decided they are more important than everyone and everything else. Now I bring this all up because you're going to see it's, it's direct relevance to our passage from Colossians this morning. Remember last week we were reminded that Jesus himself tells us everything we need to know about God. If you want to know what God's like, you look to Jesus, who is God incarnate. And when we come and we meet that Jesus, one of the first things we're going to come to understand about Jesus, there's nobody like him. There's no other person, there's no other being, there's, there's no one else in the universe that compares, because Jesus is, is over and far above all of them. In fact, there's nothing in the universe, we learn, that is not subject to the creator and sustainer of all things. He is preeminent over all things. Not just prominent as if he was one among many. He's preeminent over the physical world, we learned, over the spiritual world, and over anything else that might exist anywhere or anytime for all time. And then I left you with this question. Is Jesus preeminent then in my life? Now, before we talk about that, this issue of preeminence is going to hit home for us in Paul's words in the next few verses. I'm going to pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Colossians. And he, Jesus of course, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. And so in this section of Colossians, there's two issues I want to look at. The first of which is how Paul tells us Jesus is preeminent in his church. Look back at verses 18 to 20. He is the head of the body, his, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us, as he is in all other things, Jesus is preeminent in his church. But he has a special relationship with his church, because the church is his body, and he is its head. 
And Paul's explanation for Jesus' preeminence in the church is that Jesus himself is the one who created the church through his death and resurrection, which paid for sin, opened up eternal life, and all of those things in the creation that were corrupted or disordered by sin, Jesus has begun to reconcile them through his work. That is what Paul means by Jesus being the beginning and the head. And then you notice he brings up the firstborn thing again. We saw that last week too, right? And we learned that firstborn really isn't, doesn't mean firstborn like Michaela is my firstborn child. It means first in rank, first in importance. And here we're told he is first in importance or first in rank of those who rose from the dead. First in rank over everyone else who will someday rise from the dead. That's you and I. If you're going to rise from the dead, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're going to rise from the dead someday. But Jesus is the preeminent one of those who will rise from the dead someday. Those people being the church. And the church is made up, right, of those people who have confessed Jesus' death and his resurrection. And he is first in rank of those who rise from the dead. And the rest of us form the body of Christ, of which he is obviously the head. So if you want it in really basic terms, because Jesus is the one who formed the church and who is the first to rise from the dead permanently and stay resurrected, and he's the first in rank of those who rise from the dead, and the rest of us will rise someday and make up the body, he's the boss. He's the boss. I am not the boss. The elders aren't even the boss. My wife's not even the boss. Jesus is the boss. What that means practically then is that everything that goes on in the church among God's people should reflect the preeminence of Jesus. Remember, the church, at church here, we mean the people who have confessed Christ that make up his body, not the building that we're meeting in, although that's included because the church meets here corporately. But you're the church. The building is a church building. But when we're together, for sure, in this building, or if we're together out around the fire pit, or if we're together somewhere else, we're still the church. You don't have to be in this building to be the church. I mean, praise the Lord we have this building. Especially because winter's coming up and this building has heat. And when I meet with the other people who are the church in the winter, I like heat. Right? I, I mean, I can turn it off if you want this winter. I'll see how that goes. I mean, I got that little thing on my phone, the little app that controls the thermostat. Yeah, lay it on my head. She's already over there half the winter in her, in her coat because she's like, oh, man. Pull the space here. Now, I get that no church is perfect in this, right? Because churches are made up of imperfect people who hopefully are striving to follow Jesus the best we can and over time, hopefully getting better at that. But that doesn't mean that we should not continually evaluate everything we do, whether it's worship songs or sermons or 
social events, whatever it is, I, I just name it, things we do corporately, how we spend the money given to Jesus by his people, whatever it is, by the standard of the Lord himself. Does what we're doing reflect the Lord Jesus? Does it proclaim his person and work as the only salvation from sin? Does what we do glorify him over ourselves? Or does it reflect some other priority? I think those are always legitimate questions to ask. Renee will tell you a practice every once in a while. We'll, we'll have a song, and I will complain about a line in the song. I'll do this as much as I used to. But sometimes we'll hit a laugh like, that is just not right. And her answer is always the same. Well, we can just take it out and not do that for a second. Oh, fine. It's kind of bad this stuff. The problem becomes, it breaks down this idea of Jesus' preeminence in the church when personalities become more important than Jesus. The number one thing that I've seen in 30 years of ministry that takes the focus off Jesus in the church is people who equate their strong opinions of how the church should function with what Jesus wants. This is what happens with the celebrity-type pastors who end up disqualifying themselves, right? They decide that they're way they think they should go more important than what Jesus wants. He's not preeminent. But it's also what can happen in smaller churches when a pastor or a family or some other leader causes a breakdown in the unity of the church because they think something should be their way instead of asking what does Jesus want in this situation. Something other than Jesus becomes the preeminent thing. And then there's trouble. Now, it is not because most of the time, I mean, maybe in a small percentage of the cases, but for the most part, it is not because some person or some family or some pastor has suddenly become evil, right? They just want to cause problems. I mean, I mean, yes, there's occasionally those people out there who are just people that, you know what I'm saying? They make you want to not live out the fruit of the Spirit especially the one about kindness and self-control. But that's a small percentage. It's because self has become more important than Jesus and the other people who make up Jesus' thought. Jesus isn't preeminent anymore. The priorities become what we want over what Jesus has put forth in the scriptures that he wants. And suddenly, this member of the body thinks that they're more important than the head. Now, what does Jesus want? Now, you might ask that sitting there thinking, well, Pastor, what do you think Jesus wants in his church? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask that, so I'm going to tell you. And you can disagree with me later. Or you can disagree with me now and talk about it. I would maintain Jesus wants the following things. Among many, for sure these. He wants us to love him by loving other people. That's the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God by heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love him by loving others. He wants us to serve one another. Do you know in the New Testament there's 59 different one another instructions in the New Testament? Love one another, serve one another, you know, buy one another guitars. Oh, that was not enough. 
That's in the ORV, Orville's Revised Version. He wants his word both taught and obeyed. Right? Isn't that part of the Great Commission? And teach them to obey all things I have commanded. Once his word taught and obeyed, the obey part is particularly important. He does not want it perverted for gain or influence. He wants us to stand up for justice and righteousness and help the hurting, because that's what he said he came to do in his inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue. He wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. I can pretty much guarantee you those are things Jesus wants in his church. Not surprised some other things too. But those are those are gonna be like my top ways of five or six. Now the church is made up of people, as we've been pointing out. And if Jesus is to be preeminent in his church, then naturally. It would follow that Jesus needs to be preeminent in the individual lives of his people. And that's the second thing that we're to realize from this passage, is that Jesus is to be preeminent for us. Verses 21 to 23. And you, <clears throat> who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you, holy and blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, that you here, did you notice I was trying to emphasize that? <laughs> I hope you notice that. <laughs> Tells us that Paul is now talking to the individuals at Colossae, the people who make up the church. They, like us, were once separated from God because of our own sin. But they, like us, have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ, which we, record, of course, refer to, as Paul does here, as the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and offers forgiveness and eternal life and a restored relationship with God for everyone who believes. Gospel in here, I think, is in those, these verses, is in verse 23, when Paul tells us that we are to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What that means is we're to remain solidly living out lives in the hope of the gospel. Our lives should be all about the hope of the gospel. And what's the hope of the gospel? Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the gospel. He is the sure thing, because it's all about him. So he's not only preeminent in his church as a body when we are corporately together, he has to be preeminent in the lives of the members of that body. That's us. We're to be steadfast and solid on Jesus' person and work. We put him first in our lives. For him to be preeminent in everything means he's preeminent in our lives, every minute of every day, in whatever way is possible. Now, you know what? That, that sounds really pious, doesn't it? Well, our pastor needs to be preeminent in our lives every minute of every day, in whatever way is possible. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't know about you. I'm not sure what to do with that. 
I mean, I can say that all day, that he's to be preeminent in our lives every minute of every day in every way possible. You can go out and you can say that to your friends, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's great, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. You don't know what to do with it. Well, you know, I've been pastoring a long time. I can say that now. About 30 years. I, I know some of you are looking at me going, really? <laughs> I'm not a bot. You're not a day old. <laughs> <laughs>
and everything else in like 10 minutes because I don't have any hair. And I mean, I'm a dude. Right? Okay. Guys got it lucky. I don't have to do my hair. I walk out of the shower, and I go, <laughs> and it's all done. Right? I don't have makeup to put on. I mean, I probably maybe should. I don't know. Maybe we should all just go back to wearing masks. Okay. So we're going to call that 56 hours. Just so you got work, and for the average person, maybe you got to get to or from work, right? So I'm just going to say that's another approximately getting to work, getting back from work, working itself, maybe 55 to 60 hours total. For some of you, a little more, right? For some, a little less. Some of you get to be retired, so that's kind of nice. We put you to work here at the building next <laughs> So that, those two together, 111, 112 hours or so, leaves about 57 hours. Which is basically about eight hours a day, just, just a hair more than eight hours a day, for everything else in your life. Cleaning the house, doing stuff with the kids, or hanging out with your spouse, or you name it. Which might sound like a lot, okay? That's a whole, that's a whole third of your day. Until you realize that just running for groceries can take an hour. Time to get there and load up the cart and get checked out. And if I have to use the self checkout, there's the extra 10 minutes when I mess something up and the person has to come and look and go, oh, 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 oh. Okay. And then let's just say you just come to Sunday worship. Well, by the time you get here and you worship and you talk a few minutes afterwards and leave, that's a couple hours. Then you get out home. You come to Wednesday night, that adds a couple more hours. You come to Sunday school, that adds an extra hour. My point of all that is, it doesn't take long, all your time's gone. And it's not like you're trying to, you know, do something crazy. And so I've become increasingly less likely to think that the old standard of time, talents, and treasures is a really great yardstick for measuring how preeminent Jesus is in anyone's life. Those things change over time. When the kids are smaller, you're going to have less time. Yeah, you've got that on the water, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> right? The baby has to be taken care of. Is not. Is, will we not say that taking care of the baby that God has given you is not one way Christ can be preeminent in your life? doesn't give you children to just ignore them and neglect them. They're ministries. They're going to grow up. They don't free up some of your time. Maybe money. It's freed up when you're older. You make more money as you get older in general. I always get a kick, you know, My, my older kids think Taylor gets way more than they ever got. Or close to that, have more money now than they did. That's why. I'm poor when she was young. She was a sucker. Hand me down from Taylor. Right. Yeah, but she had to buy all your own stuff, too. You bought your own iPad. Taylor got an iPad Pro. 
because whether it's the church coming together or whether it's you in the church or you as a person, when we're striving to be a disciple, to be an apprentice of Jesus, to be like him, it will come naturally that he will be preeminent in every way possible in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our Lord Jesus who came and gave himself up to not only save us and give us eternal life, but to create his church, his gathering of people who love and serve and worship him that we can love and serve and worship one another. And so I pray in our local church right here that meets in this building and in each of our lives that we would find in our context the ways that Jesus must be preeminent. That he's preeminent in all things and that we would live in such a way that every thought, word, deed, everything we do as a church, everything we do in our lives, would reflect the preeminence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.